Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 42 through 43 and hope for the downcast soul in Christ alone. Would you please pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And that it's enough to teach us about the way in which you have called us to live. And not only the way in which you have called us to live, but the way in which we are to live in light of the way in which you have revealed to us the path of righteousness as described and defined in your word. And so, Lord, I pray as we walk through this Uh, Psalm 42 through 43, that you would use this word in our life to help us to be grounded and rooted in the midst of, oh, of, of great, a time of great upheaval in the history of the world and help us to fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. In your precious name, I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 42 and 43 and hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. As a deer pants for the flow, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God. With loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, at the all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night a song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. A prayer, yes, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, Psalm 43 says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, and then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre. Oh, 
My, oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, as we've been looking at this, these psalms, and this psalm, these two psalms, really set the stage for book two of psalms, which we're going to talk about what book two and how long it is here in a second. But these psalms, they help us immeasurably in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of the hardship of our lives. And let's be honest, if we're on a world stage, we, we are seeing the rise of even the continued rise of China and the growing conflict in Russia. And personally, we see people losing their jobs and losing their lives. And we see wars and rumors of war. And we have discord in marriages, discord in churches. Uh, the, the spread of false doctrine seems uh, to, to just continue on with no stoppage in sight. And yet the book of Psalms is precious to us because it, it serves for us as Christians as a companion in the walk of faith revealed in the word. In fact, the Psalms, they take us by the hand and they guide us in communion with God in the, uh, the varied stages and spheres of life. These are Psalms of the heart that God uses to teach us to sing songs of joy songs of pain songs of fear songs of faith and in these inspired poems we find the full range of human emotion laid bare before god in the various settings and the scenes of life now book two as i mentioned this this starts here in psalm 42 and it runs through psalm 72 and it's distinctive this section of the psalms book two is distinctive for its variety of authors including the eight psalms known and written by the sons of korah and the sons of korah were a clan of levites employed in the sacred music of the temple they kept their temple gates and were guardians of the ark of the covenant and this explains their frequent expression in uh, devotion to the temple courts as the place where God's face could be seen. The Korite motto is expressed in Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And in fact, this book too begins with eight psalms from the sons of Korah, which suggests a focus for us on communion with God especially as experienced in the life and the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. In fact, we can say more about the sons of Korah, that their namesake was one of the villains of the Old Testament. During the exodus from Egypt, Korah led a rebellion of 250 leaders against Moses, and he was struck down by God's judgment, Numbers 16 tells us. And Numbers 26.11 points out that the sons of Korah did not die, and that suggests to us that they refused to follow in their father's rebellion. And this fact reminds us that the ungodly parents can produce children and that no child is disqualified from serving God because of his or her parents. The litmus test for serving God is to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And moreover, their awareness of God's grace in employing them in the sacred service despite their family's disgrace, speaking about Korah's disgrace, may account in part for the intense fervor for God expressed in the Psalms of Korah. And scholars are widely agreed that these two Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, were most likely an original composition. Psalm 43 is the only one of the Psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah to lack a superscription, and that suggests that it was originally a concluding portion of Psalm 42. And this explains why many ancient manuscripts combine the two Psalms into one. In fact, Psalm 43 repeats the refrain of Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And seems to fit as the final section of a unified composition, which is why we are considering it as one. And so this combined poem is a song of lament from a temple servant whose heart is downcast because of his separation from the presence of God. And the psalmist's chief desire, his chief longing of his heart, is fellowship with God expressed by a vivid simile in verse 1 of Psalm 42, which says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. A thirsty deer will search for a source of water, and then it will cast itself in the stream to drink. And this, the psalmist is distressed by a dry soul that is distant from God, and so he thirsts for the life that he's missing. And in verse 2 he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, God is the only source of life, and his salvation is described in Scripture as living waters. Like a deer that drinks deeply from the refreshing stream, the psalmist knows that through fellowship with God, the vigor will return to his spirit. You see, the divine presence is not a luxury, it is a necessity for his existence. And as we might expect from the Korites, who were Levitical singers, communion with God is associated with the liturgy of the people of God. Psalm 42, 2 says, When shall I come and appear before God? The writer asks. It, and it seems that the psalmist has been forced to be absent from Jerusalem in the temple courts. Verse 6 of Psalm 42 says, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. And so we don't know the exact location given here, but the, the psalmist places himself in, in the region beyond the Jordan to the north and to the east, located around Mount Hermon, range of mountains. Mazar, it means little hill. And so he may be located atop one of the lesser mounts near Mount Hermon at the northern end of Israel, 130 miles from Jerusalem. This is one of the last points from which one can glimpse the hills around the holy city while journeying north. And so commentators suggest that the psalmist might be among the Jews being led into exile in Babylon, taking one last look at the beloved city of Jerusalem. And yet, alternatively, King David crossed the Jordan in this region while fleeing from his rebel son Absalom. And so some have wondered whether the psalmist was one of the Levites in David's company. And yet, whatever the cause of his separation, this psalm may be expressing his one last sigh before the temple vanished forever from his sight. And while enduring this forced absence from the temple courts, the psalmist pines over his memories of the sacred assemblies. In Psalm 42.4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God and with glad shouts and song of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. 
Many Christians have had the experience of moving to a place where they cannot find a church with rich, joyful, and reverent worship that honors God as described in the Word. And in fact, their longing for strong biblical preaching becomes almost a physical craving. Like a deer panting for streams of water and the memory of earlier times when they reveled in the congregation like ancient Israelite festivals in the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise only makes their desperate desire more palpable. And so it was for this Korite who was forced to be absent from the house of the Lord. And the homesickness that we feel when we're unable to join believers for gathered worship should call to mind the greater alienation that is caused by sin. In fact, the 18th century preacher George Hone notes this from Psalm 42, If the Christian pilgrim cannot but bewail his exile from the heavenly Jerusalem, out of which sin hath driven him and doomed him to wander for a while in the valley a vale of misery, he says. And led by repentance and faith to look back to the place from whence he has fallen, he sighs after the unspeakable joys of the celestial Zion, longing to keep a festival and celebrate a jubilee in heaven, to join in the songs of the angels and hear a part in the music of the hallelujahs. The psalm's opening stanza makes an important point about worship. And so the psalmist speaks here of missing the, the worship, the spiritual excitement of the temple and its festivals. And yet his heart is truly yearning for God. William Plummer comments that the truly pious men were never satisfied with the ordinance of God without the God of the ordinances. What he's saying is, is we should never just worship God. We should never just walk through the motions. We should never just go to worship without our heart in it. So the psalmist's longing and point here is that he is stirred by the memory of worship services, and yet that memory is directed towards God himself. In fact, Psalm 42 is going to remind us that true spirituality expresses itself in a longing for God. And this is so important because we are living in a time, brothers and sisters, where this is not the case, where worship and spirituality are directed at me. This is what Eastern mysticism does. It, it makes it about my desire, oh, karma, that, that's about me. Something bad, it's about karma. It's about something that happened to me. It's all about me. That's what Eastern mysticism does. And this is what pagan spirituality does. It places me at the center of worship. And yet what Jesus says to the woman at the well tells us so much in John 4 that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we have, must ask, how can we have a spirituality rooted and grounded in the truth apart from the revelation that God has given to us? And the answer is we cannot. And Jesus says this in John 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And yet we also must say that Christianity is not only a, a set of abstract doctrines, important as doctrine is, because it's teaching that comes from God, and the only place to get that teaching is in His Word. And yet it is also possible to know the Bible very well, and yet live a worldly life. 
if we are not pursuing, thirstily pursuing God. C.S. Lewis once complained that the problem with people is not that they demand too much, but that they settle for too little. And so it is for the Christian who does not seek to personally know and enjoy God as he has revealed himself in the Word. In fact, Augustine once explained our need for God in his famous prayer in the Confessions. Thou hast created us for thyself, and our heart cannot be quieted till it find repose in thee. And so this opening exclamation of Psalm 42, it challenges us a great deal when a time when Christians seem more interested in the benefits of the Christian lifestyle than in the glory of communion with God. And we must ask a couple of questions here. Do you have a passion for God? Do you have Do you realize that the true purpose of your life is a pleasure in the glory of God and that the highest possession you could ever attain to is communion with God because you are united to God through faith in Christ alone? And do you realize that when you come to church, are you aware that you are coming into the presence of God and that the elements of worship are only of value as you fix your eyes, not on those elements of worship, not on the worship leader, not on the songs that they're singing, or even the words that your pastor's preaching. But they're only of value to you, only a means of grace to you, as you fix your eyes on the Lord in the midst of the worship service. You see, if we have a heart that seeks after God, we will increasingly be increasingly immune to the allure of the world. And our lives will bear marks of his likeness. And this is so important because as john owen once wrote that great puritan the more that we behold the glory of god the more the painted glories of this world he says will fade away the more that we in other words what he's saying is is the more that we know the lord as he has revealed himself in the word and the more that we know of the character of god revealed in the word the more that we know of the glory of of god revealed in in Christ, in Scripture, the more that we'll know about our sin, the more that we'll know about the grace of God in Christ revealed in Scripture, and the more that we will grow to be like Christ as defined in the Word. And this is so important because what we're seeing today is too many Christians being, too many professing Christians being allured by worldly ideologies and philosophies that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we are to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. Colossians 2.8 tells us that we are not to be captive to worldly philosophy and ideology. Instead, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness and respect. Jude 3 tells us to earnestly contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That is described and defined in the word. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 tells us that we are to, we are to correct opponents with gentleness. And we must ask then, in light of all those passages, what is God wanting to do in us? Galatians 5, 22 through 23 very clearly tells us that the fruits of the Spirit, these are things that God in the life of the Christian is aiming to produce through the means that she, of the Word. 
That Those are the things that as you read the word, as you study the word, as you meditate on the word, as you memorize the word, God is aiming to take that word that you read and you study and he's aiming to drill it down deeper into your heart. And he's aiming to do the same thing as you hear the word preached. He's wanting to take the word that you hear to help you to be planted in the word. And the reason for this is our growth as Christians and our enjoyment of the blessings that God gives us are ultimately dependent on our thirsting for God as a deer plant, a deer pants for flowing streams. And for those of us who know too little of this great reality in Christ, the words of William Cowper's hymn should enter more and more into our prayer lives. When he says, oh, for a closer walk with God and a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. And now the psalmist is going to prove that the most godly believers can go through great spiritual calamity and distress. Martin Lloyd-Jones chronicled this reality in his book, Spiritual Depression, when he said, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and a lack of freedom and the absence of joy. And this is one reason, he said, why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And the question raised even by Christians was expressed in the title of Irma Bombeck's book, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, What Am I Doing in the Pits? The answer of Psalm 42 to that question is that life is not a bowl of cherries. Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse in John 16, says that in this world you will have tribulation. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that we can expect expect if we're being faithful to christ we can expect times of difficulty and so the psalmist he details a number of reasons that he's depressed here in addition to his separation from god and one reason is is that he suffers the taunts of his enemies psalm 42 verse 3 says my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long where is your god and so the author here is deeply grieved. He's struggling. He's hardly able to eat because of his sorrow, he says. And apparently some have mocked that God had abandoned him. Psalm 42.10 says, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And these are the taunts that Christians may hear when we go through the troubles of life. Unbelieving neighbors or even co-workers may compound our distress when we perhaps lose a job, suffer an illness, experience any number of life's myriad of woes. And so they taunt us saying, what good is your religion anyway? After all, we, we see this in with Job's wife he, when she spat into that godly but afflicted man's teeth in Job 2.9 saying, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, she said. And so we can easily imagine how much mocking and depressed this psalmist who was separated from the temple of God was. Charles Spurgeon writes, The wicked know that our worst misfortune would be to lose God's favor, hence their diabolical malice leads them to declare that such is the case. And we must say that Satan, knowing that he cannot destroy the children of God, often uses such taunts to discourage and even torment believers, anticipating his strategies, Christians, should be alert to the danger of allowing such mockery to depress our spirits. 
I remember once one of my former pastors, now he, he was in ministry for pastoral ministry for 40 years. And he would say, Dave, you need to stop playing the screen, the movie. He used the movie screen analogy. Because, you know, in a movie screen, they have scene after scene that, that goes back and continues on and forth and so on. And in this way, what he was saying me, to me is stop replaying the, this, those discouraging scenes and those discouraging thoughts over and over again. And that's what we as Christians should do. We should stop replaying those scenes over and over and over again in our lives. We should stop thinking about the things that the world says about us and instead do what Philippians 4.8 says, to think on what is lovely and good and of noble report as described in the Bible. We should be taking more of the, the scriptures in to our hearts and thinking about it and meditating on it, taking it home into our lives. And how much more important is it that we not afflict ourselves with such a thoughts of abandonment by God? After all, Romans 8, 38-39 reminds us of the truth to which we must cling to in the midst of trials when it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And not only was the psalmist faced with taunts that challenged him, but he was oppressed as well with malicious assaults. And in Psalm 43 verse 1 we see this when he says, Vindicate me, O God. And defend my case or defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and the unjust man deliver me. He has been unjustly attacked, just as everyone who tries to live a God honoring life will sometimes be unjustly maligned or mistreated. And Paul says that in Second Timothy four three twelve, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, the oppression is so great that the writer feels overwhelmed by his trials. And he says this in Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And he's in a region where the headwater of, of, of the Jordan roars in the canyons and the sound of raging waters from the deep reminds him of the troubles that are pouring over his head. And this leads to a third cause of his distress, his fear that God had abandoned him. Psalm 42, verse 9. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go to mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. And here is an example of the honesty that makes the book of Psalms such a help to the people of God. Some people think that God is disinterested in them, that he doesn't care about them, that he is not actively involved in the affairs of man. And the, what the psalmist does is he shows that God is interested, that God does care. And as the psalmist, psalm writers pour out their hearts from, to God, as they admit their doubts, their fears, their complaints against God, realizing this should encourage our authenticity in our prayer lives. You see, we often just view prayer as lifting up our supplications and prayers before God, but our prayers are to be rooted in the scriptures. And what we see in the psalmist in the Psalms, as, 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 God, as these writers sharing their burdens, their cares, their anxieties, their discouragement, their questions. What we need to understand is that God knows how we are feeling when we're feeling 
then a step in recovering ourselves spiritually is to express ourselves openly and honestly to God because he cares for us. And at the same time, the psalmist calls upon God as my rock, reminding us of the to unburden our hearts in an attitude of faith. And in the book of Hebrews, what we see in Hebrews 4.16 is that we are summoned to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. That's what our hope is founded in. And we need to remember this, that when Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished, it was signed, it was sealed in the blood of our Savior King. And that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. We have hope. We have a savior. We have a high priest. We, in every single way, in every single avenue, Christ is Lord. And what that means is that we can run as Christians, united to Christ by faith in his name. We have hope. And so we can run when we're discouraged. We can run to the Lord in the midst of our discouragement, our anxiety, our depression, our fear, our doubts, and whatever ails us, whatever maladies we have, whatever things are festering in our hearts, we can take them to the Lord because he cares for us. And not only does he care for us, he knows us and he knows the hour of our temptation. He knows the very needs that we have because he knows the very hairs on our heads. He knows the thoughts that we think before we think them. He knows the length of our days. We belong to the Lord. We are slaves, his slaves. We are his bondservants. He is using us. Those who are united to Christ by faith in his name, he is using the means of his word that his spirit uses to carry the truth of scripture to our hearts and to our minds. That is why Paul said in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is such hope in the midst of the times in which we're living in, because let's be honest, we, we see the wars and rumors of war that Jesus spoke of and in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And, you know, we could we see the banking crisis happening in our day, and it can just be overwhelming. It can be so incredibly discouraging. And then you have a, a, a 24-7 news cycle that perpetually focuses not on any good news, not on any good that's happening in our world, but only the negative, these wars and rumors of wars and the banking situations and uh, continued issues in Washington and uh, issues regionally, crime all around our country, even an obsession with now with criminal trials. And oh man, it can just beat a person down into a pulp. And we need to find our hope, our refuge in the Lord, our rock. And be reminded that in the midst of all the things that are happening in our world. The Lord is sovereign over all of them and he is working in the world that the history will come to a conclusion. And we need to be reminded of what Hebrews 12.1 says, to fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. Because we can become so full of anxiety, so full of discouragement. We need this reminder. We need to remind ourselves of the truth. And this is what the rest of the psalmist is going to do for us. 
Psalm 42 is valuable not only in depicting spiritual depression, but in showing the biblical way to deal with a downcast heart. We see this in the refrain that occurs three times in verses 5 through 6 of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on how the psalmist directly confronts his doubting and depressed spirit when he says this man was not content just to lie down and commiserate with himself. He does not, uh, he does something about it. He takes himself in his hand, he says. And the psalmist also challenges this poor state of mind, asking, why are you cast down on my soul? And so Lloyd-Jones points out that whereas the man's depressed heart had been take, talking to him and dictating his attitude, he now talks to his heart and he begins dictating to it, saying this, that the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. He says, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to yourself, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be so disquieted? And Spurgeon says, his faith reasons with his fears. His hope argues with his sorrows in this way. And the point of all this is to recognize what the Psalms preached to his soul. We must not to seek to address our hearts with false remedies. And so he doesn't say, don't just worry. Everything is going to be all right. Just buckle down. Uh, you can handle it. You can do it by yourself. These are ways that the world seeks to address our depression. But the Christian argues not on the basis of their own virtue or the go own goodness of their world, uh, neither which is true. And so the Christian regains their footing by preaching the truth about God to themselves. This is why verses 5 through 6 of Psalm 42 says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. At first, we need to understand that the psalmist is encouraging himself with the precious promise of his knowledge of God as a mighty Savior. He describes God as his rock in Psalm 42.9, a refuge in which he can run in Psalm 42, or Psalm 43.2, and as God my exceeding joy in Psalm 43.4. And here we see the great value of knowing the attributes of God. The sovereign God is unfazed by all the powers of the world arrayed against his people. God is faithful and is steadfast in deliverance. And so when we appeal to God, we obtain the mighty help that is undaunted by any dangers of the world. William Plummer says, the more terrible the storm, the more necessary is the anchor. And so regaining his courage with the truth that he knows about God, the psalmist commands his soul, hope in God. And second, the Psalms preaches God's sovereign grace to his downcast soul. In verse 8 of Psalm 42, he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so this expression that God commands his steadfast love is a marvelous truth. God's saving mercy does not operate at, at our fickle command our fickle fancy it goes forth at the command of god revealed in the word of god because god has promised mercy to all those who call on faith in jesus christ and so his grace for the believer as as certain as the fixed order of the seasons god has covenanted himself to save to uphold all who believe in his son and god commands his steadfast love in accordance with his sovereign promises in christ this is why, in addition to knowing the attributes of God, 
Christians are to encourage their downcast hearts by reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the word. An example of such a biblical promise is Jesus promised in John 6:40, which says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Charles Spurgeon says, No day shall ever dawn on an heir of grace, and find him altogether forsaken of his Lord. The Lord reigneth, and as a sovereign he will with authority command mercy to be reserved for his chosen. In armed with the truth of sovereign grace, Lloyd-Jones says, Remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And so the psalmist preaches to his heart the great value of the means of grace that God has provided to his people. Psalm 43, 3-4 says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. And so this is the call of a distressed Christian who opens his Bible and finds light in God's word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the psalmist pleads with his heart to anticipate a return to the courts of God because it's there that we can remind our downcast hearts that our prayers in Christ's name will be heard in the presence of God because of Christ. And as the psalmist spoke of going to God's altar with joy, we should preach to our hearts the truth that we should go to the ministry of God's word. We should seek the altar of grace and prayer. We should look forward again to gathering with God's people in worship. In this way, even in a depressed, war-torn, anxiety-filled world where the 24-7 news cycle tells us that we are worthless, that we are defeated, that we have nothing to offer the world as Christians, We are to take our hearts in hand and we are to speak the truth about the saving grace awaiting to us as revealed in the word of God. And as we wrap up our time together, there's one last thing that I want to talk about. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus applied words from Psalm 42, 6 to his own distressed spirit. When he told his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus experiences one more proof that Christians should not be ashamed to admit a distressed soul. It may at first discourage us to see that even God's Son was overcome with grief, but the Gospels tell us that the Savior entered our sorrows in order to deliver us. Earlier on his day of arrest, Jesus alluded to the distress of Psalm 42, saying, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour in John 12, 27. And we do not know what caused the writer of Psalm 42 to be far from God, but we know for certain why Jesus endured a bitter alienation from communion with his Father. And so Jesus suffered a separation from the Father greater than the distance from Mount Hermon to Jerusalem, and he suffered a raging torment more violent than the waters churning in the, in the Jordan's deep canyons, all to deliver us from the judgment of God on our sins. And so we can be joyfully hope for a restoration to the holy courts of heaven because this chasm was bridged by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And just as 
and just as his was the downcast sorrow of Psalm 42, so also was it the joy of his refrain. In Psalm 42:11, it says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so even in the darkness of the cross, Jesus rejoiced in the hope of the resurrection promise. If that is a promise we share, if we have committed our cause and our lives and our everything to the Lord Jesus, if we are united by faith in his name, he pledges that nothing in Romans 8.39 will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's saving work should lift up our downcast souls in any form of distress. I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God, the psalmist says. You see, because of Jesus, God will never forsake us. He will never leave us, and he will raise us up on the last day if we are united to him. You see, the gospel is cause enough for us to say with the psalmist, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Earlier we discussed and talked about God's mercy in accepting the sons of a guilty man such as Korah must have surely played a part in their intense fervor to know and serve the Lord. And since God has shown even greater grace for us, sending his own son to bear and remove the curse of our sin, how much more gratefully ought we to long for communion with him and fervently echo the passion for God expressed in this psalm in verse 1. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. In the midst of great discouragement, in the midst of, of turmoil times, uh, of wars and rumors of wars, and uh, the banking crisis, maybe even personally your job loss, your, your marital issues, your relationship issues, your issues at church or in your workplace, and on and on and on. Oh, may this psalm become precious to you. And may you know how to find your hope in the midst of these discouraging and anxiety-filled times because Jesus was tempted, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us, in every respect, and yet he did not sin. And so we not only have a Savior, we not only have a King who can provide us hope, but we are to take this message and to take it home to our hearts. And I'm praying that the word of God will do its work because Isaiah 55, 11 says that the word of God will not go forth and return without void. Because the, Hebrews 4, 12 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And see, this is what the word wants to do. It, the word does cut and the word does heal and the word does bring comforts. And this sermon, this our study today does both for us. It cuts at the many ways in which we are discouraged and full of anxiety and full of fear. And what it does is it redirects our hearts, our minds, our lives, our thoughts, our everything to do as Philippians 4, 8 commands us. Because as Christians united by faith in his name, we are also indwelt by the Spirit. And Philippians 4, 8 tells us, that we are to think on whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is, is good of good report. We are to think on those things. That's good news. That in the midst of all that is going on in our world, we have an anchor to the soul. We have hope in his name. And not only do we have hope, we have one who longs to hear from us because Hebrews 4.16 says that very thing. That he is a help to us in time of need and maybe that hour maybe that time is is today for you 
You're full of anxiety. You're full of fear. You're full of questions. You're full of doubts. And what this psalm does it is it helps diagnose the many ways in which you yourself are not trusting God, finding help in Him, finding refuge in Him, your helper, your shield, your protector. Even even this in John in John 15 and 16 that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is a comforter. The comforter is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us. He is the very one who indwells us by faith since we're united to Christ in his name. And he is teaching us the truth about who God is and what God is like as he takes the scripture and opens our minds and illuminates the truth of who Jesus is and who God is and the character of God and the likeness of Christ and the glory of Christ and so much more to us. You see, there is an endless treasure in the Word of God for us, an endless treasure, an endless reservoir of help for us. And so these, we have hope. But it's not hope because of ourselves. It's hope because of God. It's hope in God. And so let us take these truths as God's people, united to Christ by faith in His name. And let us take it home to our hearts brothers and sisters may god bless not only the hearing of his word but the preaching of his word and may it be rooted may we dwell on it may we linger on it in our thoughts and our affections this week and may it be planted deep into the soil bed of our hearts let's pray father we we thank you that your word is true and then a text like this, and, and in times in which we're living, oh, what a great text. We can so easily, so easily become distracted by the world, become so fascinated with the latest news and fascination with everything that is happening in the world. And yet you are orchestrating all things, all things for the end to which you have declared. That is for our good and for your glory. And you are working in the midst of history. History is not moving willy-nilly. History is moving according to your plan, according to your purpose, according to your design. And you are even in the midst of seeming worldwide tragedy and hardship. You are working all things, all things for the end to which you have designed and your eternal purpose will prevail. And so, Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of, of things where it seems like evil is prevailing, you promise in Genesis 50, 20, that you will turn what was meant for evil and turn it around for good. And that is ultimately, ultimately, the supreme example of that is at the cross, where you said it is finished. There we can find forgiveness. There we can find hope. There we can find meaning and value and purpose. But you did not only die in our place and for our sin. You were not only buried, but you rose on the third day to give us new life. And you not only rose on the third day, but you sent promise to send the Spirit, which you did, to indwell us, to empower us, to teach us the truth. And so, Lord, it's that basis on the basis of the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one who is walks alongside of us, the one who teaches us, the one who instructs us. Lord, may you teach us and instruct us in the way, the everlasting way, the way revealed in your word, the way defined in 
and that, that gives meaning and value and purpose, the treasure that you've given to us in the 66 books. So Lord, help us to remind ourselves, to encourage ourselves in the word and by the word. And may your spirit take the word that we have heard today and may you plant it deeper into our hearts, deeper into our minds, and may it penetrate as a sword does and cut away the dross, take away, cut away at the ways in which we lack faith in the way, the way, many ways in which we have ungodly worry and fear and bitterness and resentment and fill us with hope. Remind us again of the great privilege and the great benefits that are ours because we are united to Christ by faith in his name. And so Lord, help us not only to know these things, to take them home, but to think on them, to meditate on them, and to live by them and to enjoy them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.